Hello, my pop culture junkies. Happy Thursday. This is Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays, and I'm your host, Brooke Hammerling. Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays. Hello, my darlings. Well, as promised, as I've been teasing over the summer, we are back this week with a guest. And we're going to have guests throughout the next, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say every week is a guest just because my schedule and my life and everything in between, but we're going to have guests. I know we took a break from that during the summer, but this week, before I introduce him, well, I don't even know how to do this. I have, this is a man that I have known who has known me since I was 22 years old and we're going to get into it. And so without further ado, we're going to talk all about him. He has a new book coming out and all of this exciting history and why he is so immersed in pop culture. It's the one and only author, screenwriter, comic book writer, former gay magazine editor, Gary Whitta. How is that? You did good. You did very good. I can't tell you what a thrill it is to be here with you, not just because I have something to shamelessly promote, but also because, as you said, you and I go way back. You've always been one of my favorite people, but it's been a minute, right, since we have seen each other or, or spoken to each other. Like, literally, when you just popped up on the video, it's the first time I've kind of seen you in years, and my goodness, I don't know if you're using some kind of TikTok magical bullshit filter or something, but you look incredible. You haven't aged a day. Your, you still have your beautiful, mellifluous, dulcet tones. My goodness. Whatever, whatever, whatever you're doing, keep doing my it. My Lord. I would like to introduce everyone to my new co-host, <laughs> Gary Witta. <laughs> We're going to be doing this every week. Well, it's funny because you have seen me grow up. I mean, look, I'm going to be the first to say I don't have kids. So I think kids age us. You guys don't sleep and you are dealing with the frenetic energy of children. I mean, look, if, if you could, this is an audio podcast, but I can see we, we have this video up right now. If people could see the side by side of you and me. And the question was, which of these two has kids? there would be no doubt about it. That is just not true. You actually look great. We, you know, we've gone through the phases of, I think in the nineties when I was just a little PR girl at a, at a PR firm representing you, you were a client Mm -hmm. because I was working underneath Monica Madrid and we were at a a firm called Access and we represented Imagine Media, Mm -hmm. which were the game magazine publishers of your publication, PC Gamer, along with Next Gen and many other magazine titles and got into that posse with you and Tom Russo. And wait, you know whose birthday it is today? Today we're taping early. We're taping on Monday, uh, September 11th, but it's Neil West's birthday. Good old Neil. You know where Neil is now? He lives in Madrid. Does he? He's living his best life in Madrid. I mean, he was, you guys were always my favorite. So just to back up, we were babies. Mm -hmm. We were the same, roughly the same age. And I had moved out to San Francisco in 1997, 1998 and got this job. And I mean, I was 23, 24 years old. Yeah, the same age I moved out. I was 23 when I moved to San Francisco in 96. Yeah. And I was at the time, those early days, I was living in Sausalito on a houseboat. And then I moved, I broke up with that boyfriend and moved into San Francisco and then was dating rock star boyfriend, if you remember those days. And then when, and then ultimately I moved into Gamer House. I moved in and I was living with Jason, who's has mm-hmm. passed away, which is so tragic, um, and Neil West and a couple of others. And this was a gamer community. People in my life now don't realize that I was a freaking gamer. Like I 
we were gamers. There were times when I would just sit in my apartment all day and play video games, especially when I got out of Sausalito because that boyfriend did not approve. But um, we played a lot of games and I talked a lot of gaming and we represented a lot of gaming. We, I also was part of the team that launched Dreamcast, which was the um, Sega, the Katana, yeah, which was the code Back in name. 99, yeah. 99. I worked nine nine ninety nine. We just had the anniversary. I worked with Electronic Arts, which is why I know how to spell John Riccitello's mm-hmm. name. Like there's nobody's business. R-I-C-C-I-T-I-E-L-L-O. Right. How many times do you have to write that in a press release? We went to E3 together. Oh, we, yeah. Back when E3 was banging, when it was still so the place fun. to be. Remember when E3 was in Atlanta? Oh, I mean, that, that was, was a the, rough one. You remember that? The Atlanta E3? I, I sure. That was not fun. I sure Never do. again. I, sh- I mean, we got, we drank a there lot. Was, I mean, we drank a and lot. I, I have not had a drink. I'm teetotal now. I have not had wow. a drink since 2007. I didn't realize that. Well, that's why you look so good. You look so young and fresh. I was drinking too much. I mean, and we were bloated yeah. as fuck. I mean, we used we to live drinking. in, we used, you used to, you would come by and we would talk business and, and you'd show us like games that you were promoting and we'd talk about how we were going to cover them in the magazine and then we would go out and get smashed. Smashed. Yeah. I mean, we may even have started at the office. I mean, we, we would talk a lot about that, but I have a really funny, I have a funny ma- game story that I think... <laughs> I'm going to embarrass some of the people on this on who know me, but remember Matt Firm? Yeah, he used to be my boss. He was your boss. And I was a junior, you know, I was working under Monica Madrid and I was, you know, I had been in this corporate environment, in a corporate environment where, you know, you had to dress a certain way. You couldn't wear open-toed shoes. You had to, it was this like throwback to a different day. And I was sitting in this conference room in a meeting with a lot of the staff of this agency. And it's like the big, long, dark table and the, the conference phones that look like octopus or whatever. And everybody's sitting there and needing to be seen by their boss. And, and I guess, and I didn't have, this was before Blackberry, certainly before iPhones, before text message, we is before Wi-Fi. So we didn't have laptops sitting in this. I I remember when I got my Motorola razor and I thought that was such hot shit at the time. The razor. Oh my God. I had the red one. I loved it. I thought (laughs) it was so groovy for red, but I, there is a, the receptionist would take phone calls for us when we were in these meetings and I'll never forget. There was, I had a crisis with two clients and or one cl- was a crisis, but one was trying to reach me. And somebody came into the conference room and they said, Brooke, you have two client calls right now. And I said, oh, okay. I said, I'm so sorry. And I'm like 22, 23. And I feel like I'm playing dress up. And they said, well, I said, well, who is it? And they said, we have firm on one and limp on two. And it was because we had Matt Firm was one of my clients and the other client was Dave Limp, who is the head of this company called Network Computer. Well, look, I'm, I would say... If in doubt, always go you, with firm over limp, right? Surely. I said, I'll take Matt Firm's yeah. call. <laughs> the entire room just sort of like burst into hilarious, you know, into hilarious laughter. And I'll never, I was so embarrassed. My face turned bright red. And um, I, I remember that story like it were That's yesterday. Funny. Like it were yesterday. It's funny for me when I think back about my time on PC Gamers, sometimes it feels like yesterday and other times it feels almost like someone else's life, like a whole other lifetime ago. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that particular moment feels like yesterday, but being a gamer and a gamer girl, I'm traveling around with you guys all over the place and getting drunk and playing games and talking, like being a video girl, game girl. And I, I, it just feels like a different world. It yeah. feels like a completely different world. There is a, as a uh, procedural drama 
buff and as somebody who's put in her 10,000 hours of SVUs and 10,000 hours of true crime podcasts, there was one particular episode of SVU that dealt with Gamergate and Gamer Girls and like the girl got, or a couple, there have been a couple actually of SVUs where women in video game business have come out very poorly. They Mm -hmm. get raped, they get attacked and all of that. But I will say my time in Gamer Girl with all the boys was magnificent. It doesn't feel real. I mean, the fact that we're alive and kicking and successful is amazing. I think it's, you know, obviously that, you know, it was, there was still a a, a certain amount of like unreconstruction going back in the nineties. You know, we've all, we've all come a long way since then in terms of our attitudes, but it was also largely pre-internet. The internet was still very nascent in the mid to late nineties when we were doing, doing our thing. And I think a lot of the toxicity that we see now with gamer gay and, you know, there's, there's so much toxicity in the, in the discourse around video games that you know, the, the internet, while, while a great tool for communication is, I think has facilitated a lot of that. Do you think it's because of the anonymity? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that's the only reason, but I think, it, I, I think it enables it. Yeah. I know. I I mean, I don't think it's the only reason, but you're right. It does enable it. I, uh, you know, the gaming world has evolved so much and I, and we can talk, sit here and talk about gaming all day, but I want to talk about how you've evolved because you, a lot of people don't realize that they know you, but they've seen your movies. I mean, you have been at the forefront of some of some of the most watched movies. You wrote uh, the book of Eli and Mm -hmm. Rogue One. Mm -hmm. Like, let's talk about that. How did you make trans? transition from video games into screenwriter and like not just a little independent screenwriter. Yeah. So I, I grew up in, in the UK in in London in the, uh, in the 1980s, I was going to spotty skinny acne ridden kid um, who loved comics and video games at a time when it wasn't necessarily cool to be into that stuff. Right. Like now it is right. Like Marvel and star Wars have made, um, being a nerd cool, right? And everyone, like all celebrities, like now it's cool. Oh, I'm such a nerd, right? Back in the day, that that was not cool. And it, it got me beat up quite a few times at school because I was, I was considered super nerdy, but I was very unapologetic in my love for all of that stuff. I grew up loving two things. I love video games and I love movies. And I, and I always wished that uh, it was my dream to kind of make a career out of one or, one, one or the other of those two things. And I've been extraordinarily uh, fortunate because so much of my career, I give a whole speech about this when I, when I talk at conferences, so much of my career is predicated on luck and being in the right place at the right time. But I was able to, I got a job at a very young age uh, working on uh, a video game magazine and that led me to uh, PC Gamer. I helped launch PC Gamer in the UK uh, and actually became the youngest editor of a national magazine in the UK. At that time, I was 21, and I was editing PC Gamer in the UK. And then at 23... And that was... Was that when Chris Anderson, right? Yeah, Chris Anderson started... Chris Anderson now, of course, people know him from TED Talks. And, I know. Uh, so everybody... You guys have to understand, Chris Anderson is the owner of TED, and he's the one that anybody who's been to a TED conference or seen TED Talks has seen this very polite British man, usually in some sort of, like... Asian or uh, some sort of very debonair, role. very put together, very, very sophisticated. Put together, whereas, you know, yes. And wears a lot of, of different worldly jackets and coats yeah. and things like that. Very debonair. But he started as a very different kind of he, guy. He was a video a game journalist like me. He's, uh, um, he was the editor of uh, Zap 64, Commodore 64 games magazine that I grew up reading. And then he started Future Publishing. Uh, with a magazine called Amstrad Action. And he was the guy who pioneered the idea of putting cassette tapes on the front of magazines. Like what if we, um, you know, you back then you would load games uh, on your computer with a cassette tape and, and he put cassette tapes, what we called cover mounts on the front of the magazine. 
uh, and it be- became extraordinarily successful. Everyone so copied him. So they were like him. packaged in. So you would yeah, get I mean, the they were literally well stuck on. In, in, in the same way, we get a music magazine that sometimes we give you like a free music tape. These yeah. were cassette tapes that you would load programs into your computer with like demos from for games and like sometimes complete games. And it was super super popular, and everyone copied it. And then that beca- and then that later became CDs and DVDs. And for it, for it, obviously now physical media is kind of on its way out, if not already gone. But there was a time when you would go into like a UK. Uh, newsstand, especially on, also in the US, when like you couldn't find a magazine that didn't have some kind of you know DVD or CD-ROM or something stuck on the front of it, and that was that was all Chris. That's wild, and it's you know he was a partier, he was a wild man. He yep. was a, he brought Future Publishing became Imagine Media yep. Network, brought it and- to the US. That's what got that's what brought me here. Yeah, I, I, I transferred from Future to Imagine, which was basically. PC Gamer in the UK had been, yeah, PC Gamer had been successful. They asked me to come out in 96 to help shepherd the the US version of it. I thought I was going to be out here for a year and come back with, you know, lots of stories about living in America for a year, but I fell in love with the Bay Area. And and as you're right, yeah, that begat IGN. Um, IGN doesn't, they'll tell you right now, and these days, the letters don't mean anything anymore, but it originally stood for Imagine Games Network, right, from Imagine Media. When I tell people that's what IGN stood for, that are gamers now, they look at me like I have 10 heads. Yeah, right. And then IGN, of course, has gone, it's gone, got passed on through several owners and is now, you know, probably, probably the biggest, if not one of the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest website in gaming and also popular culture, because now all the big video game websites also cover film and movies and, and TV and, and everything. So yeah, IGN's huge. And I was there at the, old enough to be there at the inception of that. It's wild. And I, you know, I want to talk about the screenwriting. I will say you have a new book. And so I'm going to say this more. We're going to get into it. But I want to talk about this book after we talk about your movies and how you went from video games into screenwriting. But the book that's coming out this week, right? I think it comes out tomorrow. Yeah, it comes out on the 12th. Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, that's tomorrow. So this week, by the time this publishes, we're in the time machine, on Thursday, this book will be out and it's called Gundog. And this is Gary's second novel, which we're going to get into. I don't want to give much away right now, but um, your first novel was written in 2015 was my first novel. and Abomination. um, Abomination. That was pre-Star Wars. And then I, I did Star Wars and went on to... That ended up occupying my my time for for I spent like five years inside the Star Wars universe working on oh all kinds of stuff. My my weird brag is that I'm the only person in the world to have written Star Wars for film, television, books, and comics. No one else has done that. So I've kind of got like a weird Star Wars egot that no one else has. So did like the Star Wars junkies come out? Like you must be held in high regard at like Comic Con and that stuff. I I do. I it's funny. Like one of the things I like about being a writer, being behind the camera, is I'm not nearly famous enough to. I can go to Starbucks, right? No one's going to bother me. Like maybe once or twice a year, someone will come up to me at Target or whatever and go, oh, you Gary Witter. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's very manageable. But when I go to Comic-Con or any kind of, you know, nerd convention, I do a lot of them these days. I call that, ner- I call that um, like celebrity fantasy camp. Because like I, you go to a place where you, the, 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 everyone there is a member of that very specific subset of people who is very likely to know who you are. And so it's kind of like for a few days at a convention, you get to experience what it must be like to be actually famous because everybody recognizes you. Everyone's always stopping you. People are coming up and say, oh, I really love your work. Can I get a picture? Can I autograph? And those interactions are really, really fun. But like, it's really nice at the end to then be able to go home to my normal non-celebrity life. And I think a lot about- Does your wife say like, Gary, remember, take the trash out and keep you real? Like, do you get a little jaded when you first- I mean, mean, literally that's my my entire life. Yeah, is is taking (laughs) the trash out and like- 
you know, it, it, when I get to go to Walgreens, that's a big day out for me. Like, I'm very much a homebody. I don't in any way have a glamorous life. I, I sit here uh, in my desk wearing my, my, um, my, my sweats and my, my PJs and, you know, very rarely put on uh, real big boy trousers. And I like that. I like Hard I like pants. Li- we call them hard pants. Hard pants. Yeah. If I, if, I, if I can spend the rest of my life never having to wear a pair of, like, button-up trousers, I'll, like a non, non-elasticated trousers, I'll consider that a win. Well, then, um, I mean, you're in the right business. But let's talk about, let's going back. I mean, that's, it's also fascinating. And knowing you from where you, from which of you came from, how did you do that transition? There was that weird period of time because, like, we had that internet crash. We had 9-11. Obviously, yep. today is the 22nd anniversary of it. And then we had the internet crash, if you will, of San Francisco, that dot-com crash. But, you know, the video game world was obviously still booming along separately yeah. to it. But the, the world changed. San Francisco changed in that 2002, 2003 moment. I, I moved, I left the Bay Area, moved to New York. And I sort of, I didn't, I guess I did move away from gaming to some extent. I still worked with like, I remember when John Riccatello joined Elevation. So we had that. We launched Jamdat, things like that. And the mobile gaming, Zynga, things and whatnot. But from console gaming, I sort of took a step away around 2003. Where did you go and how did you make that leap into screenwriting? So it's funny you should mention it because the, the career change that I had was was largely due to that crash that you just mentioned back in like 2001, whenever it was. Um, I don't think I ever would have had the courage to gamble the very satisfying career that I already had to then try and do something completely different, which which would have been another big risk. I, I said earlier that I, w- I would have been thrilled to make a career out of games or movies, which are my two big passions, my hobbies growing up. And I had I'd done the game things, right? I was the editor-in-chief of the biggest selling games magazine in the world. And, you know, I kind of reached whatever pinnacle you might want to think of it as. And I was very happy. And it never would occur to me. So, well, let's let's cash all that in and get greedy and, like, let's see if we can, like, make the film thing happen as well. Let's see if I can, like, you know, win the lottery twice, basically. I, I think I in another, in another universe... I'm still editor in chief of PC Gamer because PC Gamer is still going. Um, yeah. I, I would, I was maybe the longest serving editor of PC Gamer in history because I never would have had the courage to move. But my hand kind of got forced for me. Um, the company that that published PC Gamer during the internet boom, because you remember before the bus there was a boom, published a magazine called Business 2.0, which was like, oh. the, which was like a, a magazine that was all about how to make money on the internet during the new dot-com economy. Jim remember Daly, this? Jim Daly, yeah, from Wired. Yeah, of course. I mean, Business 2.0 was our, was our Bible. It I made mean. a huge amount of money. They very, I mean, it was so popular. That originally it was monthly. They made it bi-weekly because they, they, they couldn't sell enough of them. Remember um, how thick it got? It got really thick. Jim Daly, who would come over from Wired, was like considered the rock star, you know, guy and he, oh that's Jim Daly like in the in the in the hallways but then as quickly as it came it went the bubble burst business and suddenly there was there was no nobody wants to read a magazine about how to lose money on the internet which was all that was really left to talk about yeah you had business 2.0 industry standard and red herring that became the three biggest magazines sort of beyond right. anything else right. and they were sell- they were so thick because they were selling so many so many ads, ads. yeah and these guys then built a business around how much that advertising business was going to be and then in like Overnight, crickets, the internet world stopped. It collapsed. The investors went away. The funding went away. These companies that were funded could, like, were closing up. They're certainly not advertising, and everything just went like poof. Yep. Really. And so, what happened was um, 
Business 2.0 was so successful that they were making so much money that they saw it as an opportunity to, to expand and, and launch magazines in other areas, like music magazines, film magazines, and Imagine was growing very, very fast. But when the bubble burst or the advertising dried up, Business 2.0 stopped making money. And so all of, the money, all of that money that was supporting all of these other ventures, everything collapsed all at once. Uh, and so I suddenly found myself uh, laid off. Uh, and it was a bit scary because I only had because I it was still on an E2 visa at the time. It's before I got my green card. I had 30 days to leave the country, basically. And I didn't want to go home. I was happy here in America. That side all got sorted out, but I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And I thought, well, look, I've been kicked off the train, um, you know, and it, I, I kind of took it as an opportunity to kind of ask myself what I, what I wanted to do. Do I want to I, I could easily have got another job in games because I had this really good resume. I could have gone to work for IGN or whatever with with the resume that I had. But I thought, OK, let's let's take. I mean, this, this hand has been forced. How do I kind of turn lemons into lemonades? Maybe I will try this other thing. Like, there's nothing to gamble anymore, right? Because it's already been taken away from me. I don't have a job. Um, so let's give this a try. I, I really want to try writing movies. And I'm, I live in California now. When I lived in the UK, it always seemed like a faraway dream. But I live close enough to LA now that, I don't know, maybe. Let's see. I had a tiny little bit of money saved up. I lived very, very frugally for about a year just living off, you know, canned soup and ramen noodles. And I, and I wrote a bunch of screenplays each one slightly less terrible than the last because I'm very autodidactic and I, I learn by doing and making mistakes. And each script, I would like learn what not to do. And I eventually wrote one that I wasn't uh, afraid to uh, 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 show to someone. And I send them out blind to various managers and people in Hollywood who accept unsolicited queries. And I got a call on a Sunday afternoon from a guy called Lawrence Mattis uh, who said, I'm only halfway through the scripts, but I already know that I want to sign you because I really like the writing. And I, I I'd sent the scripts out to so many people, I honestly didn't remember who Lawrence was, but I very quickly Googled him and he's a big deal. He runs a company called Circle of Confusion who represent the Wachowskis and Robert Kirkman and all these big names. And I was like, oh my goodness, I definitely want to talk to you. And um, that was the start of the journey. I'm still with Lawrence today. We've been, we've, we've been together ever since. I mean, it is right. I'll never forget my experience with screenwriters on both sides. So I dated a, a well-known screenwriter, director, whatever you want to call him. But also I have friends in that business. And it is just like out of the movies. Like the one that I knew that the guy that I dated was already well-known. So he could write whatever and just do whatever he wanted. But on the flip side, I would visit friends who were either worked at movie studios or ran departments or ran studios themselves. And you would see them just sort of like, cherry pick a script that came in, like not even vetted, just be like, oh, you know, I have 20 minutes to kill. Let me skim through this. Like something you'd see in a movie and you don't think is true, but that really is. They get these unsolicited scripts and people read them. And then it's sort of, and then, you know, if hit future is made or not made in that sort of moment, that person's reading the script. It's wild. Yeah. It's, it's people ask me today, like, how do I break into the industry? And I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell them anymore because I don't even remember I, when I did it, it was 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. Um, and like each person's individual story isn't replicable. Like the way that I did it isn't necessarily the way that you're, it's going to be right for you or the way you even can do it uh, today. Like if I was starting today, I wouldn't have a, I really honestly wouldn't have a clue. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's like I said, so it's what was that first screenplay? Well, so the, here's the funny, here's the funny thing. And I talked earlier about how my career is predicated on luck. Um, it was called Oliver and it was a weird kind of, um, uh, uh, it was a post-apocalyptic, um, retelling Which is like of, your genre. Like yeah. It was cause I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a sci-fi and fantasy guy. And, um, it was a post-apocalyptic retelling of Oliver Twist 
that reimagined Oliver Twist as a genetically engineered superhero, which sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> no, it's, it, it was a lot of fun. We, we ended and we ended up actually publishing it as a graphic novel with Image Comics a few years ago, um, and that was the script that that Lawrence liked, and the whole reason why. He was reading it, and again, this is a perfect example of it. Um, when you know, things just fall your way, to like Lawrence is the head of the company, right? Like he's not the first person to read a script that gets sent in. Like it, there's a whole phalanx of readers and people that will like that filter it, out the chaff, right, and yeah, decide yeah, yeah. what's worth his attention. And usually, you would go through several layers of that before the head of the company would read it and make a decision. Um, that somehow, literally, my script got put in the wrong pile. It got put in his weekend read pile without anyone having seen it. And he, when he called me and said, like, there's no, co there's no coverage. Like, coverage is what basically when a reader reads it and gives a summary of the, of the story and some kind of recommendation, uh, pass, consider, recommend, whatever. And it's very rare to get, like, a, a consider or a recommend. Like, 90% of stuff gets passed on. So in another universe where a reader reads it and it's just not their cup of tea, I don't have the career I have today, but it, it accidentally went into Lawrence's pile. He read it anyway and really liked it, and, and here I am. So it's, it's, sometimes it's just dumb luck. And so then what was your first screenplay that became a film? The Book of Eli. The Book of Eli. And so yeah. you already you had already written a script that had gotten the interest of people. And yeah. so were you then, was this sort of just, were you assigned this? Like, how does it work? I wrote Oliver. Uh, so Oliver, we, we sent out and uh, as expected, like Lawrence said, like no one's going to buy this, but it's a really good writing sample to like introduce you to the industry. And so that's when I got a lot of meetings and went on the whole bottled water tour where you go around and, um, you know, meet with executives and talk about, you know, projects and stuff like that. And they just want to get to know you. And I kind of batted around the minor leagues for, for several years, uh, working on just little uncredited rewrites on kind of B-list movies and stuff like that and pitching on things that never got made. I sold a movie called Reaper, which was an original spec screenplay that I wrote. Spec screenplay means you write it speculatively, right? No one asks you to write it. You just want to write it. And then when it's finished, you try to get someone to buy it and make it. So I wrote a movie called Reaper that got bought but not made, uh, but that was a very well-liked script and, again, kind of, you know, helped me get known around town. And then Eli was another one that I wrote on spec. And it was just kind of the weird, this weird idea that I had. And I didn't tell anyone. I thought if I, if I tell my agents or managers that I'm going to write this, they're going to talk me out of it because it's like it's religious and it's super violent and, like, it's a kind of a weird thing. And like, no one's, no one's going to want to read this or make it. So I just kind of went off and, like, wrote it by myself without telling anyone, sent it to my managers. They didn't quite know what to make of it. But they're like, well, you've written it now. Let's give it a try. But they sent they sent it out into the world, and Joel Silver decided that he liked it and got Warner Brothers to buy it for him. And Denzel, he found somehow found its way to Denzel, and he wanted to do it. And it all it took a while, but it all came together. And that was my first big studio movie made with like big actors and a proper budget. It was it was wild. My God, I sat behind Denzel at one of the many viewings of Hamilton that I went to. Uh, uh -huh. I know there's some people here that listen to this podcast that don't like Hamilton and I still love you, but I was a Hamilton junkie and I went to as many viewings as I possibly could, but man, Denzel, he sat in front of me. He is clapping and cheering. He is such a vocal person and so animated. It was he's, wild. He's a big guy physically, but he's also he just one big. of those guys that like, as soon as he walks into a room, like, I, I got to know him quite well and, and worked with him at his house like for several weeks on the script and became quite friendly with him. I, I love him to bits. He's such a nice guy and he's always been very kind to me. Uh, but he's one of those guys where as soon as you, obviously he's like spectacularly just like a good looking guy as well, right? He's one of those guys where if he walked into your office to like fix your photocopier, You'd be, you'd be like, what the, dude, what the hell are you doing? You should be a movie star. Like, look at he you. He just like, has that quality. Just has that X factor, yeah. whatever, whatever no you want to call it. 
And like, as soon as he walks into the room, you just, you're just like, holy shit. Like he just owns the room. And it was really, I was very nervous around him for a while because I was told that he had kind of a, he was a reputation for being a bit prickly. And like, I didn't want to get off on the wrong foot with him. So I was very careful around him the first, the first few days, but then eventually kind of, we warmed up to each other. And from then on, it was, it was all good, but yeah, incredible. And just, I mean, your first time out as a first time screenwriter, and there you are with one of the biggest names ever in Hollywood. Yeah. And I I couldn't believe that he was doing this movie. I I mean, on on another day, I'll tell you some of the, I've got, I can dine out for the rest of my life on my Denzel stories. But he was super, super nice to me. Just a, a true gentleman. His um, his wife would would make her uh, Caribbean jerk chicken wings and bring him in for us, and we would eat sit around and eat them. And it was just, you know, it was it was it was one of those like pinch me type experiences. And he's obviously so incredible in the movie. And that's the movie that gave me a career. After that movie came out, I went back, you know, to meet, you know, to do the the, the all the general meetings again, the bottled water tour. But I'm like, it's all the same places. But now I'm like, oh, I didn't know this building had a, had a second floor. Because now you, I'm you, meeting the boss of the guy that I met before. You got into the inner sanctum. I had been That's anointed. Once once you've had like a movie made with real stars and a real budget and it's well, people really, really liked the script as well because it has this big twist at the end that people don't see coming. And uh, people st- people still, you know, give me props for that today. It really, it really was the movie that that kind of gave me a career. Yeah. I mean, my Lord, I, and, and deservedly, cause it's, it's just one of those movies. I'm, you know, I am a post-apocalyptic junkie. Like I love all that shit. Like, love oh, you'll like all. the, you'll like the book then. Cause I it's can't also, wait yeah. to read it. I mean, to, so, and we're going to get into it. And for those of you who are avid listeners of this podcast, you know, I don't script it. We just sort of go into conversation. So again, we're going to end on talking about gun dog, your latest novel that has just arrived at my house this weekend and will be what I'm reading. But going back to just because the newsletter has just published. I actually haven't even sent it to my newsletter list yet. We're so ahead of schedule today on on the podcast, behind the schedule on the newsletter. But just because I like to tie things together, the lead story this week in the newsletter is the Ashton Kutcher, Mila Kunis apology or bad apology that's gone on around this whole, you know, their friend Danny Masterson, who has been convicted and now sentenced to 30 years for rape. A horrible story all around. These victims have been through the ringer. There's a Scientology element. But they've become the lead stories because they wrote letters that they, one would assume they assumed was going to remain sealed in private to help with the sentencing of their friend and they became public and now they found themselves having to do an apology and the why this comes back to it is that Mila Kunis was in Book of Eli yeah she was she played Solara and um she and I would hang around on the set and and geek out about playing World of Warcraft because she was a World of Warcraft junkie back in the day when I was as well I mean she's a cool girl I I've heard nothing but lovely things about her and it's uh you know I mean but this is now front and center knowing that you know that have a personal connection to her when you saw this start to unfold as I'm sure you did what were yeah I mean the Danny Masterson thing I mean just begin obviously is disgraceful I mean what I I I read that I mean what a shocking story especially when you like when you get into the Scientology side of it and how those victims were kind of pressured for, you know, uh, from coming forward. And it's just, it's really, really awful. The the Ashton and Mila thing, it's, I, I mean, I, I feel like they probably needed 
better advice? Like, did, did, did nobody, I mean, first of all, maybe don't write the letters in the first place. Maybe like, don't write the letters. Like I said in my newsletter, I was like, if my best friend got in trouble for something awful, I would probably still write a letter to say, but like, I would explain it very much. Like, listen, not, I would start off by saying, I don't want to take away from what's, what's happened. And I don't, but I just, this is just to tell you about this other person that I know. I, know it, I, I mean, obviously every situation is different. It depends what they're in trouble for. I don't, I don't care how good a friend of mine you are. If you have been convicted for multiple rapes, Yes. And you come to me asking for a for a for a letter. Yeah, you're not. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, dude. I can't help you. Yeah, not, you're they, right, and you're right. I guess I'm thinking of my girlfriends who would not generally be accused of rape, but say they were like murdered a abusive boyfriend. I would be. I would write that letter. But nevertheless, they shouldn't have written the letters. I interpret there is like in the 19 second mark of their apology when Ashton's speaking and he says we are asked by the family to write these letters. You see Mila's eyes go up, her eyebrows, and she makes this sort of like she probably doesn't even willingly you know aware of it. But it's like in my interpretation of that sort of eyebrow raise is her saying like, yeah, fuck you family. You promised us this would be confidential. You promised us. This and again, maybe someone out. should have told them that court documents generally are public. Um, they go into the public record. You know, there, there was, there was, there's so much about it. That's just, I, I know that the families came back and, and complained about the apology saying like, you, this wasn't just like a, you know, a nice letter, like you were undermining, you know, trying to undermine what we were saying. And, and then the apology seemed gaslight because they were trying to say they weren't saying something they very clearly said in the letters. So in the newsletter, what I've point out that I find extraordinary is that this generation, and it also leads into this Sophie Turner, Joe Jonas breakup, is that this Gen Z generation is so, as somebody who comes from PR, you, you certainly are well aware of the PR world as being on the other side of it. I used to pitch you stories and things like that, but how well aware Gen Z is of like the people behind the scenes. So they know that they're manipulating the sort of outcomes. They know that like you're, they listen to PR people or maybe the PR people gave them bad advice or maybe they didn't listen to the PR people's advice. And here they are in a crisis of their own making and it's seemingly making it worse. There's, there, there, there is a. I was watching a thing recently about apology videos and when they work and when they don't. They typically make things worse, right? If they're not really well executed. And like, I watched that video. It's clear they're uncomfortable. They don't want to be there. The wording felt really scripted. It didn't feel Very. organic or from the heart. Like you could tell, oh, that's like a phrase. Lawyer was, scripted. Yeah, you've you've test you, that that's tested and lawyered and focus grouped or whatever. Like it just feel this doesn't feel like there's nothing genuine about it. It feels really fake it's it's uncomfortable to watch it's a kind of a non-apology which is those are always the way like if you're going to apologize apologize right so what they should have done is by like come out and be like we shouldn't have written these letters yeah. you know we were overwhelmed we were stuck in a, a rock in a hard place we regret everything everything yeah. you've said is correct your criticisms are correct and we have a lot to learn we 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 didn't want to disrupt the the victims or take away from what happened and yet we did we realize it and we're terrible people and we're going to you know, fix ourselves. That's sort it's, of I mean, a couple of things that are weird about that is like, yeah, I, I think the only way an apology video ever helps if it, if it comes across and is truly genuine and you just throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Right. And that, but that's not what they did. They kind of talked around it. It's weird, right? Because they're professional actors. They're used to being on camera and they understand the media ecosystem. And yet everything they did made it sound like they had no idea what they were doing. Like they're glancing around. They're not comfortable that it doesn't seem, it seems kind of rehearsed, but not rehearsed at the same time. It's awkward. 
they just don't seem to understand that this is not going to help them. Like, just don't put this out. And you, you and I were talking about it before we went live. It's so I funny because I, this is why you don't mess with the internet. Like, they have this very humble kind of what looks like a barn behind them, just this kind of like this kind of stripped wood behind them. There, she's Someone, not wearing makeup. They're right. very low key. They're in front of this like it's, this it's, it's all meant to look wall. very sincere and somber. Yeah. Someone, of course, went and found the Architectural Digest photo tour of their home where they clearly found the one part of their house that they could use as a backdrop that didn't look like some fabulously opulent surrounding so you know that it's it, it's, it's not in front of this very glamorous like what they're looking at is this gorgeous swimming pool and this vista that goes on for miles and it's really funny i have it in the newsletter because it's like you don't fuck with gen z you don't fuck with the internet so i actually wanted to take the opportunity to turn this around and ask and ask you a question about this because you're the pr expert like assuming you assuming you would even take this job i know because i don't do crisis because i like but yeah. let, let's imagine that you are in, in that room and they're saying, look, this is blown up. These letters are public. What, what do we do? What, what would you have advised them to do? You know, I mean, something ha they had to do something, I think, because it was just, you know, they had to control the narrative mm -hmm. um, or at least get their side. I, but I, and I may have said we have to do an apology video um, and off, but it would have been a very, very different setting. It would have been mm -hmm. a very different script. And it would have been exactly that. If they weren't comfortable saying we fucked up, we should never have done it. We've learned. If they weren't comfortable saying that, then I would say, then you can't do a video because you don't want to force somebody and make them feel like they're in because like, they'll come across as hostile. It's, it's high risk, high reward when you do one of these videos. Like it either makes things better. And again, history suggests that they, they generally don't. Mm. Um, there's a whole history and go find a bunch of examples on YouTube, like a whole history of apology videos that only made things worse. Um, and they can, because now, now there's a whole, because what, what they've done now, rather than control the narrative is they've just created another media cycle, which is all about how much the apology video. Oh, sucked, it's, right? I mean, it's transformative how it's just taken the story away from being about Danny Masterson to being about them. So it's a really, it's as bad as it gets. I mean, in this, if you, if I had hindsight, I'd be like, don't do anything, just ignore it and write it out and let take the hits as much as you can. And then there'll be another story that comes and takes over and this will be pushed to, you know, and it'll be a footnote, but people won't. So it's like in this case, it's definitely better to have said nothing and to have done nothing than to have done this video. So a great example of somebody who actually did an apology video, but not an apology video was Lizzo. Right. So Lizzo had this scandal and it looked like Lizzo was over. And all of these people came after Lizzo, these former employees accusing her of sexual uh, misconduct and abusive behavior and her team and all of this other stuff. And for a minute, the cycle everywhere was like Lizzo is done. That's it. Everybody was sad to see Lizzo go. And then Lizzo came out guns a blazing, like guns a blazing, which to me indicated and to a lot of people. And she had Marty Singer, this incredible lawyer. That she was like she had been this was she was not going to back down. This was preposterous accusations. She was being um, hosed by these people. And she just, she did the, what normally wouldn't work. But in this case, it did because I think she was, she was so genuine, so authentic. And so, uh, you know, I mean, she just, it, it wasn't like a Kevin Spacey who's like, how dare you accuse me of such things? You just found her to be very uh, a reliable source. And she came out and guns a blazing. And then that's it. She went back to her daily sort of like fun Instagrams, dancing, fashion, this and that. Now, of course, there are people who are still very hesitant about it. But I think for the most part, she did an, a remarkable job of sort of plugging that leak, if you well, like the boat stopped sinking. Whereas, uh, you know, I don't know what, what Ashton and Mila do now. Um, you know, it's, it's, 
it, it's hubris to some extent, I think, with Ashton, who thinks of himself as sort of a the brain trust of media and whether it's business and investing or whatnot, he sees himself as sort of this Svengali. And this is, you know, maybe humbling him. Maybe. Who's to say? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think in the long term, they'll be, they'll be fine just because um, generally I think celebrities, when they, when they screw up like this, tend to be the benefit of the fact that we all have such short attention spans. Yeah. There's going to be something else next week, right? Someone else is going to be in the, is going to be in the frame next week and we'll, we'll forget about it. But I think, yeah, they'll always, it, it's the kind of thing that, that never completely washes now. off. Yeah, it'll follow And them there'll now. be appeals of this case, right? Which that may end up being successful because I've spoken to some lawyers who say that if there's, if they're able to show that the jury had been like sort of tainted on the anti-Scientology thing, which is generally not the you know, if there was something there, then they could they could merit an appeal on the sentencing. But who's to say? Um, but anytime that this comes up again, they'll be back in the news cycle. So no more character letters. I mean, I think everybody's going to think twice about writing a character letter. Sorry, Britt Morgan Sachs, if you asked me for a character letter, if you've gotten in trouble, I'm not writing it for you, lady. I'm not writing it. Well, and then the Joe Jonas, Sophie Turner thing we can just touch on, but I thought it was so interesting because we've always been sort of conditioned to believe whatever headlines. And like we, in my generation, like we, I use the Angelina, Brad, Jen Aniston thing. When that happened, it was the entire narrative was Angelina is evil. She stole Brad. She must have cast a spell on Brad. Poor Brad. Like, poor Jen, but poor Brad. Brad was just, like, he didn't stand a chance, right? That's an absurd narrative, and it's an absurd narrative. Like, Brad Pitt may, is a grown man who made a decision and did what he did, but we were fed that narrative over and over and over and over again. And this generation, the narrative started to come out on Joe Jonas. Like, he, like, his wife, like, he realized she was partying too much, and he just wanted to stay home with the kids, and she was out doing living her her partying life and trying to regain her youth and there was ring camera evidence of her bad behavior and all of this stuff kept clearly coming from his camp to TMZ and Daily Mail and the Gen Z creators are like mm -mm, no no we're not buying this bullshit how dare you this is sexist this is 2023 my loves like stand the fuck down and they all stood with the queen in the north and now there's all of these videos of like people standing with their queen you know I mean it's unbelievable to me how this I always feel a little bit guilty because it is fascinating. It is morbidly fascinating, but I always feel a little bit guilty when we talk about this stuff, this kind of thing, because I think it's one of the one of the symptoms of just how like sick our media ecosystem is, is that we feel like we have skin in the game. The reality is what these it's none of my business, right? I, whether they're famous oh, and or I don't, not. I agree. I don't think I don't want to pay. And that's what I said in the in the newsletter. I said I don't normally cover breakups. I don't give a shit. This is like mm -hmm. I'm not a gossip newsletter. The pop culture isn't about gossip. That's TMZ, Daily Mail. They have that. But when it trickles into the sort of the weird cultural stuff and to see this cultural shift of people calling bullshit on media on this sort of like these packaged headlines that we're trying to be fed to try to like so Joe Jonas's PR team are trying to to make him look like this good hero well, you know when people are now hip to that I find that very interesting that's a cu cultural sort of shift. oh no I mean I I think from like a media perspective it's it's fascinating in that like you know when when breakups happen when divorces happen there's one level which is like well who gets the dogs right and, and stuff like that and how much of the house am I going to get but then that but when you're famous there's this whole other level of like media these media warring media campaigns where you know all the fans will will, will separate into their tribal groups right like just like with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard right your your view of your the view of whatever is happening is going to be 
is likely to be skewed more but less by the facts of the case and more by well who were you, who were you a fan of before this went in before this all happened right and you're going to you're going to go you're going to retreat to your corners and you're just and you're just going to believe you know who you like and you know we're seeing it again now i one thing that i think about a lot and i don't have a lot of pity for celebrities at the, at the best of times um because you know they're super rich although again i've spent a lot of time around famous people to know that being being famous is not fun i no, it's not I, it's fun. not fun at all it's not it's not what you think jim carrey uh, famously said one time, I wish that everybody could be famous for 48 hours so that they would understand that it's not the answer. And it's it's very, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I can't, for example, I can't, I've been through some, through some really, really heartbreaking breakups in my, in my time. And I can't imagine on top of that, going to the grocery store and seeing something in, you know, a, a supermarket tabloid where this is all being laid bare and, you know, my ex-girlfriend or ex-wife's no. person has been briefing against me and maybe it's not even true. Like, I can't even imagine, like, the psychological no. toll and as, that must as somebody take. who's dated somebody, a couple of people who are quite famous, but one in particular who's romantic partnerships would be sort of documented in social in media in, in mm -hmm. published media whether it's blogs or newsletters or magazines or entertainment shows and it would just it is like i had to hide from the world that's the part that scares me the most i always feel like for me maybe it's not true for everyone else but i'm very sensitive and i feel like i go through two breakups i go through the breakup when it happens and then what really hits me is when you find out there was someone new right yeah and so well, and when and you so see when it, that if it's when that's writ large like on the covers of a magazine or on tmz oh my god i mean i would have to go like live in the woods or something i did it was awful i had to go to a meditation retreat me a meditation retreat i mean my lord there's been there's been a lot but i want to move into books because breaking news well i i want to understand hypothetically say yours truly was herself perhaps working on a book and knows nothing. The first thing of writing a novel, she knows nothing. I have stories. I like to write, but the publisher that has approached me about doing it, they want me to come out with a hundred pages and a very detailed outline. You're like, I, it's like somebody asking me to write a term paper and I've never looked at a term paper before. I wouldn't even know. Did you approach it that way? Like, how did you approach your first book? Did you have a deal before you wrote it or did you just have this idea? And like, is this a death sentence? Like, is it, does it take your entire day, life, night, soul, everything to do it? So with my first book and, and also with the second, it was kind of driven equally. There was a creative imperative to do it uh, in, in that I was well-versed as a screenwriter by that point and I understand the language and, uh, of, of screenwriting very well. That's my first, my first language. I speak it fluently. I know how to write a screenplay. The idea of writing a book while intimidating, I found the idea interesting of like flexing a different muscle and developing a new, new skill. And it really was like going back to square one because it's, it, the rules of storytelling, I think, are fairly universal, but how you tell a story in a screenplay and how you tell a story in a novel, completely different. So I, I, I did kind of go back to square one. I literally at one point had to Google how many pages is the average novel because I had no idea. I've already I know done a, this. I know a screenplay is like 120 pages. I don't know how long a book is supposed I to be. I have Googled how long is a novel. I have yeah, Googled how many words? novel outlines. I have Googled what is an outline to write a novel, character development. Like this is, I mean, I might as well just go to chat GPT now and be like, write a novel on like, these are the characters. Just write me a hundred pages and I can take it to the publisher. And, and, and of course, of course, the truth is that none of those questions really matter. Like my first book was 125,000 words. My second book, 75,000, 50,000 50, words different between the two. Uh, but the, the answer is a book is as long as it needs to be. 
so that's I mean so that was the creative imperative. I just wanted to try something new. The the kind of the somewhat more commercial practical imperative was I like to write science fiction and I and I like to write fantasy and I generally tend to write stories that are fairly grand or large in scope. And back in the beginning of my career as a screenwriter, I was writing screenplays like that and realizing that they were never, it took me a while to realize the, the realities of the business then and today are that that stuff's just never going to get made. Unless you are Christopher Nolan or J.J. Abrams or Steven Spielberg or a handful of filmmakers who can just basically do whatever they want at this point, uh, if I, I just, I've learned to anticipate all the reasons why Hollywood's going to say no, because I've heard it a million times. And I know, for example, that if I were to take Abomination uh, and try and pitch that as a movie, you go into the, go into the studio, uh, the executive's office. All right, Gary, what do you have for us today? Okay, it's 10th century England. And I, right away, I can see the light go off. Even so though you've lying. had success as a, as a screenwriter. Doesn't matter. And so I thought rather than spend six weeks or six months of my life writing a screenplay that maybe 20 people ever will read, right? 20 readers at the different studios will read it. They'll pass on it. It's too expensive or whatever. We can't figure, figure out a way to market this. It does, the algorithm, because now everything's the algorithm. The algorithm doesn't like it. This is not what we want right now. Reasons that may not have anything to do with the actual quality of the writing um, or how interesting a story it might be, like that to me is heartbreaking and a waste of time. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put my heart and soul into a story that is gonna be read literally by 20 people ever, and then sit on a shelf. And there's no way for it to ever like come back and have a second life. I thought, well, there's got to be easier ways to to surface a story, to get a story in front of an audience, and th there are many because film is the hardest way to do it. Um, and so with Abomination, which was originally um, conceived as a feature film screenplay. Um, I just said, well, what if I tried to write it as a book? And I did, and I really enjoyed the process of writing a book. I think it came out well. And I, th and I thought, well, if nothing else, I can self-publish it. Because this was just at the, just, this was just at the, at the time when like Amazon, Kindle, self-publishing was becoming popular. Andy Weir had, had a huge success with The Martian. That was self-published. Hugh Howey, uh, who wrote book, uh, who wrote Wool, and that, of course, went on to become Silo on Apple TV, hugely successful. Um, that was self-published. Fifty Shades of Grey, of course, famously self-published. There's ways to do it, right, where you can go around all the traditional gatekeepers. I don't need to ask for anyone's money or permission to put a story in front of an audience, especially since I do have enough of a background. Studio executives don't care, but people do. People care that I wrote Rogue One People or co-wrote Rogue One. People care that I wrote The Book of Eli. I have about 200,000 followers on social media. I know that if I put a story out there... There's going to be an audience. I just did a, I just did a thing right now, a limited run of 100 copies of Gundog, personally signed and they sold out in 24 hours so i know that i can find mine's people not signed for fuck's sake what what really mine's not signed well you know why you know why because the public because you didn't come from me it came from the publisher yeah well that's i will bullshit. i will send you a, i will send you a personally signed copy i love by the way so gundog by the way you you had me at the at the dedication for my parents who taught me to always stand up to bullies i think so i mentioned before that i was bullied a lot in school for being a nerd and it's something that always it's 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 always stuck with me. It's triggering for me. Like I can't watch any any time like a TV show comes on where someone's being bullied. I especially switch. like I, I, I find it really hard to watch. And my and my eldest daughter just started middle school. I'm telling you, if she gets any shit in middle school, I'm fucking down. I'm gonna go down there and cause so many. Oh my god, so there's I just wrote about it. There's this girl on TikTok. Let's just play her TikTok. Things that are embarrassing. When somebody who is really rude asks why they have no friends, maybe you have no friends because you're a bitch to everyone. People who change their entire personality think they're in front of a guy. Or when they're being recorded, and someone still says bombastic side eye. It's been, what, five months? Let it go. 
when you say something funny to someone and then they go tell everyone your joke. The dupe trend. When you're talking to people and you repeat yourself and then they go, we heard you the first time. When someone points out the most obvious thing like, humans need water to live. And then everyone's like, oh my goodness, this is so real. Guys, I've been saying this the entire time. When it's like, obviously, obviously. So... She's 11. Her name is Evelyn. She's the meanest girl I've ever heard of. If this girl was in my school, she's sitting there on these TikToks. There are endless amounts of them. If I was in her class, I would literally switch schools. I would beg my parents to either homeschool me, send me to a public school, to a different school, to a boarding school. This is like, this girl is like the definition of a bully and terrorizing and getting clout as a result of it on TikTok. Like I, if that was my child going to school with her, I would, I would be sick to my stomach. I wouldn't know what to do. I, I grew up in the East End of London with two parents uh, who grew up in London in the 1960s and were very tough people. My, my mother used to hang out with the Cray twins. And so, um, you know, to two of the most notorious gangsters in the history of- Is that of, who they of, are? Of, tell, tell the audience who might not Ron, be- I mean, Tom Hardy starred in a, in a movie about them. He played, he played both the twins. Oh my God, Ron, I remember that, of Ronnie, course. Ronnie and, yeah, Ronnie and Reggie Cray were, were two of the most terrifying gang. They ran, the, they ran London. And your mom the hung with them? My, my mother hung out with them, yeah. And so they took no shit from anybody. And when, I, when they heard I was getting trouble at school, it was the classic, like, you just got to stand up to them. Bullies are cowards. They pick on people that they think are not going to fight back. If you fight back, they will leave you alone. And I remember like the following week, this bully was giving me a hard time and I just swung around and hit him so hard in the face. Never bothered me again. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's something that everyone should do. It worked for me, but it stuck with me, stuck with me my whole life. There's, there's, there's a theme of bullying in almost everything I write, even Star Wars, right? What is Star Wars if nothing oh, about standing up to bullies, right? The little 100%. guy, the Empire, is the biggest bully in the galaxy going around blowing up planets and trying to get everyone to, to you know, bend the knee. And the rebels are just these, these plucky little guys that, you know, are probably going to get wiped out because they're much smaller and, and less organized than the empire, but they, you know, they, they're going to stand up anyway because it's the right thing to do. So that was, that was kind of my way into Star Wars when I was writing. It was like, this is a story about standing up to bullies. And Gundog is a story about standing up to bullies. You know, it's an alien invasion and hu you know, humankind basically live as a subservient race in you know, alien prison camps. And it's about a, a girl who stands up and finds a way to fight back against them. So, and it's a theme in Abomination too. Like I keep coming back to that theme again and again and it's a great example of how you can take the pain like all the best art i think comes from like the you know, finding a way to kind of channel the pain and the trauma and the things you've experienced in your life in a in a positive way so that when other people read it they go oh yeah i, I get that because like, i went through that as well even if it's something as esoteric as like an alien invasion or star wars those human themes are universal right we re we relate to the fact that we're all human and these people whatever planet they're on are going through the same stuff emotionally and the main character is a girl, Dakota Bregman. How old is yeah. she? She's about 20. And so as a girl dad, did you find yourself learning about the mindset of a girl in a different way than you'd had? Yeah, before? a little bit. I mean, the, I mean, the t the, there's two main characters in Abomination and one of them is a, is a, is a teenage girl. Uh, my writing changed. Like, it's it really interesting. So I started writing, writing Abomination before my first daughter was born. And I wrote the second half after she was born. And I think you can tell. Like you can see the difference in the writing. Like it becomes like becomes more paternalistic and more about this father daughter relationship. Like you can't, you cannot have kids and have it not impact every aspect of your life profoundly, including your creative work. Like it all, I remember I used to watch Dennis Leary and, he, and Dennis Leary used to have this incredible comedy that was very kind of near, near the knuckle. And then he had kids and you would go watching these, and now all these acts is about like the crazy things that his kids say. 
it can't not affect everything that you do. So there are now, you know, there's more parental kind of familial themes in my work as a, as a dad. I think anyone, any artist, any writer or, or songwriter or filmmaker or, or anyone who's had kids, if they're telling you that, that their experience as a parent has not in any way like filtered out into their creative work, I, I don't believe you. Yeah. Just, it can't not happen. But I, you know, I mean, I would imagine me writing as, um, as I'm, I'm, you know, perhaps uh, going into this creative process of seeing if I can write a book. Um, I come at it from the main characters are women, but I'm going to have guys I'm going to write and put voices to. And it'll be interesting because my experience will be through the lens of them as, you know, friends or boyfriends or family, whatnot, but not as a, as a son. So I don't I, know if I'm... Here's the one piece of advice I would give you as a writer is like, really think hard about what your story is about. And I, and I mean that like on a deep level, like people come up to me at writing conventions and they say, what's your script? I'm like, oh, it's about these two guys that find a bag of money. And I'm like, no, 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 that's the plot. What's it about? Is it about revenge? Is it about forgiveness? Is it about what is it about jealousy? You have to find like kind of what thematically underpins everything that you do. Uh, Gun Dog and Abomination are about standing up to bullies. The Book of Eli is about the, the power of, of personal faith versus the dangers of organized religion. There's always, there always has to be kind of thematically a, kind of holding it down and like, you know, that's kind of the lighthouse that guides you through. Uh, what the story is like Gundog is ostensibly a story about a girl who finds a 60 foot tall, 600 ton uh, abandoned war mech and uses it to, um, you know, fight a, 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 a war against alien invaders. That's the popcorn part of it. What it's really about is, is, a, is a girl um, reconnecting with her mother who she, who she thought was dead. And that's where the real soul of the book is, is, is that for me, the favorite parts of the movie to write are not these kind of cool battle scenes, although they are fun. It's, it's kind of the quiet moments where it's just a mother and a, and a daughter. And when I see people, there's like a moment in the, in the book where the mother sings her daughter a lullaby. And I have people who've read the early, early versions of the book going, oh my God, like I cried or that was my favorite part of the book. And it's in those quiet moments where I think no matter how bombastic or how action-driven stories might seem on the surface, it's in the quiet moments where those stories really live. Mm, I love that. I really do. I thank you for telling me about that. That makes so much sense. Plot versus what it's really about. So I honestly can't wait to read Gundog. I, you know, I have to admit, it's been a while since I've actually read a book. I listen to a lot right now. I go through like two to three audibles a month, which do I Do you have not to count say. that as reading a book? So that's what I was just going to ask you. I feel like when I say I read, like I just finished, like, I mean, the two books that I really love this summer, which are like big hits, but, you know, Lessons in Chemistry and the book about um, Demon Copperhead, which is the David Copperfield retelling of it in an opioid age. Do I, but I listen to them. I listen to them in my car when I'm working out or, you know, all of that in the morning over coffee. And so I always feel weird when I say, oh, I just finished reading. I just finished listening. Is it the same? I find this fascinating and it, there is there is something to talk about here. So the whole reason why I kind of got into this world was my wife listens to a lot of audiobooks. She has an Audible subscription. She she listens to about three books a week. And I used to be a bit snobby about it, saying, like, if you've listened, if someone, like, you didn't read the book, someone read it to you. And, but I have two, two, vision, I have two versions of this. One, I think, if you consumed the book and you got from it what you would have got from it if you'd read it, then you, then you read it. You just read it in a different way. You read it with your ears rather than your eyes, and that's fine. 
It's not, but it's, it's, it's different for everyone. The way that I like to read, sometimes I like to sit and linger on a sentence and think about it before I go forward. And obviously you can pause, but like for the most part, a book is being read to you at its own pace and there's not no opportunity to kind of like, I, sometimes I just like to kind of sit and stare at a sentence and I, I consume it in a different way. So I'm very much an old fashioned reader reader. And that goes even further. Some people are very old school. You know, I only read on paper. I'm perfectly fine reading on a Kindle or an e-reader or a screen. I, but some people, oh, I like the feel of the paper and the smell of the book and turning the page so everyone's different but you know whoever again i always think whoever however you like reading a book read it that way and mind your own business if someone else wants to read it a different way that's fine as well but it actually had practical implications for me because my through my wife reading so many audiobooks when i decided to i was originally going to self-publish gundog i learned that something like one in three all books that are sold are sold in audio format. It's a huge part of the market. Unbelievable. I have right? this dream of writing a book and then sitting in that little booth and reading it, being the reader. The number I one question I got about Gundog is, will there be an audio book? And so what happened was, this is a really interesting story. What happened uh, was during the pandemic, when I was going to self-publish the book, I thought, well, I guess that means I have to also self-publish the, or I can't not do an audio version because that's one out of three copies, theoretically. I guess I need to produce it myself. Like, how hard can it be? It's audio. Well, as it turns out, like, do, to do anything good is really hard, uh, including audio. But I got really lucky, right? I work in Hollywood. I know talented people. During the pandemic, when all the movie uh, sets were shut down, I, I knew some actors that were sitting around with nothing to do. So um, I reached out to my friend Shannon Woodward, who was on HBO's Westworld, uh, Troy Baker, who's, uh, of course, we all know from The Last of Us. And I said, would you be interested oh, in, in doing this audio book? And they were like, yeah, like, we'll do it for free. Like, we just want to do it. And so they recorded nine hours of audio for me. We put a full orchestral soundtrack on it. And I ended up releasing it as a serialized podcast, nine hourly episodes. If you read the whole thing, that's the whole audio book. And we just put it out for free just as an experiment to see what would happen. So if anyone out there is uh, thinking, oh, uh, this book might interest me, but I want the audio version, it's already there. It's been out for almost a year. It's completely free. Just type Gundog into any podcast provider that you have. And all nine episodes are there. We're going to put it in the show notes. Befide, that, that's incredible. So besides finding the podcast, um, how do I find Gundog? Where do I buy it on Amazon? Yeah, you can go to Amazon. You can actually go to, there's a special, you can go to kindoffunny.com, K-I-N-D-A-F-U-N-N-Y.com slash Gundog. That will just take you to the Amazon page. You just go to Amazon, type in Gundog, G-U-N-D-O-G. You can go to Barnes & Noble. I got a real kick out of the fact, so the books, it's a small indie publisher, but it's distributed, distributed by Ingram, which is one of the biggest distributors of books. So it's at Target, it's at Walmart, it's oh, pretty it's much everywhere books cover. are sold. They did a beautiful job with the hardcover. That's, a, that's the first edition. It has a really embarrassing typo in it that's getting fixed right now for the second printing where um, is the so typo i'm not going to tell you if you find it i'll you, I, i'm not going to point you to it um, i can't wait now now you've given me a puzzle i'm going to that, like, literally... that first edition which was because they didn't expect it to be i've got a little bit of a brag in that the publisher is saying that it's the it's the most heavily pre-ordered book they've had since before the pandemic amazon went back to them and said like we need to up our order so that's really good and my kind of used 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 car salesman's pitch is like Get a first get a first edition before they're gone because that typo and everything else. Like when I'm dead, it might actually be worth something. I know. I'm keeping it. I'm gonna have you sign this one. I'm gonna sign next time. Well, I, we, I said I would come down and hang with you in LA, right? Keep, I'll sign it for now you. Now that you realize I'm here, you oh. have to come see the house. Okay. We, I told you that this was gonna be 40 minutes. We've already gone over Look the hour. Happened. So I'm gonna. I love this book. I'm gonna tell everybody to buy this book or go listen to the pod or both. Go find buy the first edition and find the typo with me. We'll make it like a Where's Waldo. But last thing we. Yes. Always end with a little game I like to play, which is make out, marry, and mute. 
it could be about a real person. It could be about a fictional person. It could be about an idea, a theme. And I want you to do it. But do you want me to go first and then you can give you a minute? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I would make out, I have to say I've become, I, I wasn't always a huge podcast listener, which is ironic. I know. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, but I wasn't like listening to other podcasts and everybody was talking to me about this one they loved or that one they loved, but Smartless, I have really become addicted to those guys. And they have Kara Swisher on this week, who is my, you know, best friend slash somebody I love to make fun of to keep her real and grounded. But I love the Smartless guys. I love their podcast. I love their vibe. I just love it. So I would make out with all of them and they're all hot. So there you go. I would marry, I, I have to say, I think all of the creators on TikTok right now, the investigators, they're like the Mossad meets the CIA meets the FBI. Like that would be fun. That would be a fun marriage with people who just like do nothing but uncover from like tiny. There's this guy on TikTok who you're able to send a picture from your plane and you'll say, where am I? And he's able to just by looking out the window of the plane. Oh, sort of yeah. Be able to figure out where I saw a he- scary thing about that where there was, there was I think it was maybe a YouTube video or an article where it was like no it doesn't matter how like vague or small like the view out of your window is someone can figure out where you live based on like just the tiniest sliver of the of, of the outdoors a hundred percent and this guy is proving it like he can pinpoint the seat this person took the photo from so but I find that fascinating I like you know again my ten thousand hours of all my true crime stuff like I I I'm here for it and then I would mute you know my god it's like another day. I just want to mute all of the 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 crazy political stuff right now, it's just endless. The crazy hate speech that people are putting out there that everybody is giving oxygen to. But I would also, I know we're Trump-free. Another person I want to celebrate are the people who gave Donald Trump and DeSantis the finger at the Oh, Iowa good for them, State, yeah. Like, at the football well game. Well played like, Iowans, yeah. I mean, unexpected. They're all wearing red T-shirts. I was expecting them to be like clapping and they're all giving, there's this amazing photo of Donald Trump looking down at to see of people giving him the finger. So like celebrate them. That's it. That's what I got. All right. Is it my turn? Your turn. All right. Well, I have to be careful with make out and marry because I'm married already. Well, you're married, but this is all just like not, not real people. You're just theoretical. All right. I, may, I might do them out of order. For marry, I am going to, and I'm doing, I, if you gave me like 10 extra minutes, I might come up with a better answer. This is off the top of my head. It might be one of my favorite YouTubers. There's a YouTube channel called, um, I think it's called Emmy Made or Emmy's Made. She, uh, Emmy is a like an amateur chef who cooks amazing things. And I, my, my five minute fried rice recipe comes from her. She's I'm always, with her. always, Oh, do you know who Emmy yes. is? She's always cooking and doing interesting things. Sometimes it's like really a really cool recipe. Sometimes it's just like, Oh, you know, there's, there's like a, a weird, like Japanese Twix flavor that I'm going to try. Like she's, it's all different, you know, ends of the cultural, uh, or, or the, the kind of the, 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 the food, Epicurious spectrum, and I, I I like watching Emmy's videos as well. And I just kind of feel like if we were married, you know, you're, you're eating you're eating well for the rest of your life, right? So so for okay for for me, and I I understand why this is not practical. Um, I'm actually going to pick Kara 
because, and I'm glad that you mentioned this, Cara Swisher, because I, I know that you and Cara are friends. I think she's terrific. I love her to bits. We both live in San Francisco. I need someone. I want to be friends with, I want to be best friends with Cara Swisher. And I feel like well, you are the person. she mainly lives in DC, but she would like to live mainly in San Francisco. She posts pictures from San Francisco all the time. Because that's her like, happy I wanna, place. But I want to hang out with Cara Swisher sometimes. Okay. So if you want to make the intro, uh, that would be very nice. I just, I just think she's like, I just think she's hilarious and very smart and she takes no shit from anyone. Um, I kind of, I kind of feel like she's like the female version of me in many ways. And I, I just, I just, I dig her vibe so much. Don't be, don't be like that. Don't be down on yourself like that. What? No, I'm being good. <laughs> just oh, no, I see ah. what you mean. Okay. Um, and then mute. Uh, oh my God. I mean, how long have you got? I could go all I, day. Seriously, right? I'll give you, I'll give you two. The first one's a gimme. I, I'm, I don't need to hear from Elon ever again, ever Thank again. You. We call him space Karen here. So it's so tiresome. What, bu what bugs me, there's nothing more annoying than people who think they're funny but are not even vaguely funny. Like no. just every joke just fucking dies. I'm dying to read the book though. I'm in, Kara did a review, which made I'm just, it I, I don't, don't think he's interesting read. enough to read a book no, about him. But like, he really just, thinks he is. That's the, that's the thing. But in the moment right now, the one person that I like literally will change the channel is Vivek Ramaswamy. I can't oh, fucking yes. take another minute at that guy. Well, neither can Eminem. So he's done a season. Good for it. Good for, good for Eminem. I love it. I love that whole trend of like politicians walking out to a certain song and then the musician saying, no, I'm not having it. It's, we've talked about it here. It's pretty hilarious because it continues to happen over and over and over again. And these conservative Republicans take like musicians that are known to be liberal in their mindsets. And it's just like, what do you it's think like, is going to happen? You see, how, you see all the time happening. Like Ted Cruz thinks he's cool, right? And Ted Cruz loves The Simpsons. But then so The Simpsons writers went out of their way to make sure that, that, that he knows that they hate his guts. They and the hate thing is, him. And, and, and it was the same thing happened with, with Ramaswamy. Is like He came out and said, oh, I, don't, I don't care if Eminem likes me or not. I guarantee you he does care. I he guarantee you it bugs cares. him that and Eminem thinks he's an asshole. There was this amazing interview that came out last week. I think it was on MSNBC where they really did call him out. Like they held him. They're like, you. Oh, was it Mehdi? I think it was Mehdi Hassan yeah, was that Mehdi. took him to pieces. Yeah. yeah. Took him to pieces on his, um, you know, making hundreds of thousands of dollars, but accepting the Soros scholarship, ironically. Because there's nothing there. The answer that he gave at the debate about what would you have done on January 6th is I would have I would have brokered a solution where like that falls apart under five seconds of scrutiny. You would, yeah. wouldn't like you would not, in fact, have done any of that because none of it was practical or made any sense at all. It's just words coming out of your mouth that sound good in the moment and maybe work very well for the fucking brain-dead audience that you're trying to get to vote for you. But for anyone with one iota of intelligence, it's just bullshit. No, and, and it he's drives just, me he's crazy. Literally the same guy as that Martin Screlly, the pharma bro guy. Oh I mean, he did the same thing. He hyped up a, of a of a stock around a uh, medicine around Alzheimer's. It turned out not to actually be a medicine that worked, but he got it pumped up. So he made gazillions of dollars before the medicine went away. I mean, it's just he's a crook. He's a criminal. I I agree with that mute. The late great Martin Amis wrote a book uh. about his first experiences in America and it's called the moronic inferno and that phrase I think sums up where we are right now more better than anything I find it's I love America I became a naturalized American citizen I believe in the promise of this country and so to see what it's being dragged through right now this this debasement this disgrace of our of our public life and the people that we find ourselves looking up to it's beyond comprehension to me. I despair every day. I'm sorry to end this on a, on a sour note, but my goodness, what a mess we're in. Well, let's see. Let's start reading your books. Get your book also turned into a movie so we can watch it and 
come together in a movie theater. The funny thing about that, Brooke, is that, again, this wasn't part of my calculation at all, but I was like, well, I can never get these things made as a movie, so I'll write it because people only want IP, they don't want originals. Well, guess what? Now, now it is a piece of IP. Now it's a, you know the hit podcast and hopefully best-selling book. And so once you establish it that way, then suddenly then the Netflixes of the world are like, oh, can we make a movie? And that's the only way you can get things done anymore in this business. Well, we're going to be needing a lot of content since this strike is going on. Okay, and we didn't even talk about that, but I don't oh, have God, time. Another, I'll come back and talk to, talk to you about the strike any Time. Yeah, this is not the last time you're going to be on this podcast. No, I love um, it. This is so fun. It's so fun. Thank you so much. I have to run to a meeting. I haven't even published my newsletter yet, but whatever. <laughs> we'll get there. This was amazing. Gary, I love you. More to come. I love David, you David, thank you for being an amazing producer. Everybody, Gun Dog by Gary Witta. We'll have a link in the show notes, but enjoy it. I can't wait. That's what I'll be doing in the next couple days. Talk soon. Have Bye. a great week. Pop Culture Monday.